Welcome to the Eternal Family podcast class. This is class number nine, where we take a look at one more gospel symbol, one element of the creation, one teaching of Jesus to help us improve our families, and that is the rib, that Eve was symbolically taken from Adam's rib. Where did that place her? Where do we place our spouses today? We will look at three very powerful applications of that symbolism and ask, the self, ask ourselves the question, are we keeping our spouse and keeping that relationship in harmony with the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So we're going to kind of transition here, but I wanted to go one more time on gospel of Jesus Christ contributions to what we know about the family. So I remind you, let me pull up my proclamation. And I've kind of just, we've been focusing on three different families, an eternal family, the family of heavenly parents. All of us are children of heavenly parents. And then this earthly family, husbands and wives. And then we've got the gospel family where Jesus is our father. And we are children of the covenant. So I love that this one is sandwiched in between, kind of like in the plan of salvation, right? We've got the eternal family from pre-mortal life. I come into a mortal family and then I'm born into the family of the covenant. So that kind of pushes, puts, puts our mortal family in between the father and Christ. So first we looked at this family as an example. Then we've been looking at this family. One of the great lines of this proclamation is that happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we let the gospel covenant teach us, we have better families. We're more successful in our families when we are part of the covenant. And then it gets very specific. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreation activities. That's where we've been spending the last several weeks understanding principles of the gospel that will make family better. Now, I'm going to move forward in the text as we focus on husbands and wives in mortality, but then we're, we're going to springboard back to this one. Where we're going is that parents need to provide certain things. Mothers typically provide what essential element for children? That is a sacred word. We'll talk a lot about that word. Children need to be nourished. And it's usually mom who does the nourishing, right? Who do you run to? Who did you mostly run to throughout your life when you fell down, when you're in pain, when you're hurting? You go to mom and she nurtures. Fathers typically do what? By divine design, fathers, and if we really want to pinpoint one word, I love to pinpoint this word. I know preside and provide are important, but what do dads usually do? Protect. Dads protect. I have a sixth grader who is terrified of wind. Anytime, he checks the weather app every single day to see how windy it's going to be. And anytime there's strong winds, he's terrified. And when he comes home and it's going to be windy, he asks one question. Is dad here? He's okay. If dad's here, 
dads protect. Now, we do not in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe in sameness. The major difference we have with the world is we do not believe men and women should be the same. We don't believe parents are irreplaceable. You need a mother and a father. And they're not the same, but they are what? Equal. And so I want to, I want to talk about this phrase, but then go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'll be kind of our last build our family upon principles of the gospel class before we get into things that the proclamation says about family specifically. But fathers do something, mothers do something, and it's not the same. However, in these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as... Now, that's the concept from the proclamation I want to focus our attention on tonight, but I want to do it by taking you back to the gospel. Now, do you remember last week when we talked about work and play, we turned to Moses. Can we turn there again? Go back to Moses chapter 2. Now, notice this is kind of an odd chapter, and I know a lot, there's lots of explanations, and I, I'm very familiar with what other people say is the explanation, but can I just point out my thought on Moses, whoops, not New Testament, I need Prolo Great Price. Moses chapter two, notice has the six creative periods, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Now going to day six, look at verse 27. Is Eve there? If you read this carefully, I, God, created man in mine own image, and in the image of mine only begotten created I him, male and female created I. Is Eve there? Pretty obvious that Eve is there, right? Not only is Eve there, but is Heavenly Mother there? How could God create males and females in their image unless there was a female there? Pretty obvious that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, Adam and Eve, are all here in this moment of creation. But Eve is there. Eve doesn't get created in chapter 3. Eve is present in, in chapter 2. In fact, I, God, blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Not only... Is it the them, them? But they received a commandment that Adam can't obey without Eve. Is Eve there? It's pretty clear to me that Eve is there in chapter 2. Therefore, chapter 3 has to be imagery, symbolism. It's commentary. Heavenly Father said, I've created this earth, now let me talk about it. Can I talk about how to be successful? And remember, this is where we picked up last week. What was the first commandment he gave them after they cre he created the earth? Work and rest. We talked about that last week. But now I want to go to the very end of chapter 3. This funny story has to be symbolic. 
And I wonder how many of you have never even thought about the symbolism of it and how serious Heavenly Father is making this. I, the Lord God, said unto mine only begotten, a very profound statement. It is not good that man should be alone. Man here is not male, it's all of us. It is not good that mankind should be alone. He's not saying that Eve's not there. He's just simply commenting that we need each other. We need to pair up as partners. It is not good. Therefore, I will make an help meet for him. Now, this sounds like Eve hasn't been created. Do you see the contradiction? I will make an help meet. I would suggest that all of this is symbolic. Bear with the symbolism. And so, what does he do? What does he do symbolically? I, the Lord God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and as he slept, I took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in the stead thereof. And the rib which I, the Lord God, had taken from man, made I a woman and brought her unto the man and said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, this is not a story of how Eve got created. This is not literal. It is not our doctrine that this is literal. It is our doctrine that this is symbolic. So tonight, let's see if we can talk about three symbols of Eve being from Adam's rib. Symbol number one, where does that place your spouse? Where? At my side. I'm going to let that just distill upon you. If God had taken Eve from Adam's foot, where would that have placed the woman? Below the man. Now, are there men who place their wives below them? And I can tell you from the very creation of the world, Heavenly Father is saying what to that man? Not appropriate. That is not how successful families operate. God did not take Eve from Adam's foot. The woman is not below the man in anything. The woman is not below the man. If God had taken Eve from Adam's skull, where would that have placed the woman? Above him. Are there women that place themselves above their husbands? Are there women who make horrible jokes about their husband and demean him and kind of call him stupid in front of their friends? and place themselves above their husbands. And guess what Heavenly Father just said? That's not appropriate. If Heavenly Father had taken Eve from his sternum, where would that have placed the woman? In front. Are women supposed to just lead out and men follow? You want to know how many poopy diapers I've changed? My wife and I have changed over 50,000 diapers. And guess how many, guess what percentage I've changed? 
at least half. If I'm home, I change the diapers. That is not something that my wife leads out and I just follow. I do not believe my wife came from my sternum. My wife is where? Always at my side. If Eve had come from Adam's spine, where would that have placed the woman? Behind. My wife is never behind me, never in front of me, never above me, and never below me. Now, let me be very, very clear. In the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood. Hierarchical priesthood means your authority changes as your hierarchy changes. My bishop stops presiding the moment my stake president walks in the room. He has higher authority. That's a hierarchy. In the home, we do not practice hierarchical priesthood. In the home, we do not practice hierarchical priesthood. Let me be, say, let me be very clear. We do not practice hierarchical priesthood. Priesthood holders, those who hold an office, are not above those who do not. Dallin H. Oaks was a little boy when his dad died. And his mom kept saying, I can't wait to have a priesthood holder in the home. I can't wait to have a priesthood holder. Then he was ordained to the priesthood. And he thought he would preside in the home because he holds the priesthood. Who presided in the home after Dallin H. Oaks, the son, got the priesthood? Mom did. Because in the home, do we practice hierarchical priesthood? We do not. In the home, we practice home priesthood. Some people call it patriarchal priesthood, but the world has butchered that word, so I choose not to use that word anymore. We practice a different priesthood in the home. Let me point out another place we practice that same priesthood. There is one place where we practice the same priesthood we pre practice in the home. And you know, I know where it is? In the temple. Now, let me give you an example of the difference. Let's do hierarchical priesthood. I need a female who, no, anyone, anyone who served a mission. Who served a mission? My return missionaries. Okay. Your mission president's wife had how much authority in the mission? Did your mission president's wife preside when he wasn't there? Was she vice president of the mission? Was she co-presider? No, she was simply set apart as, either of you know? His companion and a sister missionary. She was simply, a, she was not the president of the mission. When a temple president is set apart, what happens to his wife? She is set apart as the temple matron. Now, how much authority does he have over the women's ordinances? Those of, you, those of you females who went to the temple, if you've been to the temple, who performed the ordinance for you, male or female? Who was it? it was Not who, but male or female? Wait a minute. Are you telling me that females exercise priesthood ordinances in the temple? That doesn't sound like hierarchical priesthood, does it? Because it's not. It's not hierarchical priesthood. It's the same priesthood we practice in the home. 
Who's in charge of the male priesthood? Who's in charge of the male ordinances? Who's in charge of the female ordinances? And they stand side by side. If there are no females, can the male step over and take over and do the female ordinances? What? In the absence of a female, a male can't step over and take over? Because how much authority do the males have over female ordinances? Who presides over the female ordinances? And those two preside? Kind of like... Do you see it? Do you see the symbolism? Now, unfortunately, because we practice hierarchical priesthood in the church, some people think what? Some people think that that's, how we, that's what we practice in the home. And some people think that one is higher than the other. If one was higher than the other, then where would God have taken Eve? And where did he take Eve? Therefore, in everything I do, in every decision I make, money, everything, in every decision I make, where's my wife? If I place her below me or behind me or in front of me or above me, I am incorrect. That is not where God placed my spouse. Always at my side. I am going to plead with you. You will know the person you're dating is the wrong one if they consistently put you somewhere else. If they do it when you're dating, guess what's going to happen? Have you ever been on a date where the person put, that put you somewhere else? That's a great indication that that person is not your spouse. If you can't date side by side, you'll never marry side by side. Tell me what a side by side date looks like. Tell me what a side by side date looks like. And your silence is very interesting. Tell me what a side-by-side -side marriage looks like. Okay, so uh, my wife's a stay-at-home mom, and that's her choice. From the day she had our first child, she's been a stay-at-home mom, and she loves it and has not regretted that decision once. And yeah, we've struggled because I'm a teacher and we have 10 kids, and she's a stay-at-home mom. But I'm the one that is employed so when it comes to money, where's my wife? Side by side. Could I make the argument that I earn it, therefore I decide how it's spent? If I make that argument, where, do, where did I just place my wife? And is that right? Where is she in all moments? Side by side. How about how we spend the money? Side by side. In every decision, I place her and keep her at my side, and she keeps me at her side. So tell me what a side-by-side -side date looks like. I stumped you with that question. I didn't think it was that hard. Oh, no, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> what does a side... Let me... Okay, let me ask the opposite. What does a non-side-by-side -side date look? Okay. Let's answer that. What does a non, tell me something that's happened on a date that instantly tells you this is not a side-by-side -side date. 
Okay, hijacking of the plans is a great example. Hijacking of the plans, or how about, now I get the element of surprise, I want a surprise, so I've kept this a secret and we're gonna do this. I get that. But even in the element of the surprise, what do I choose to do that would make it a non-side-by-side date? We're gonna do what I want to do. Where did I just place her? Behind or below, right? And I just gave her a pretty good indication that I'm questionable marriage material. Do you see my point? I love the symbolism of at the side. I love that we practice a different priesthood in the home than we practice in the church. If Russell Nelson goes to my house and I'm not there, who presides? My wife would preside. Now, if Russell Nelson comes to my house and my wife and I are preside, my wife and I are there, who presides? Don't say me. Who presides? We. Just as much her as me, right? That's a different priesthood. Right, and the other half thing is that if I hijack his plans when he's making the plans, that's not cool. You just placed yourself right. where? Because then I'm, I'm hijacking. You got it. And it's easy to do, right? How about a side-by-side -side conversation? How does a side-by-side -side conversation go? Let me show you how it knots goes. I have something really important to say, and you start to say something. I have something else really important to say. And then I had, yeah, something. then you say, you say, so. okay, I have something very important to say, blah, 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 blah. And then, and you say, oh, and I have something else important to say. Now tell me how a side-by-side -side conversation goes. Where I'm listening. And I'm? Also listening. And what did you say? I don't know. And I'm? <laughs> but you get the point, right? A side-by-side -side conversation says, I am no more important in this conversation than you are. And I'm going to hold you at my side by when it's my turn, I'm going to tell you from my heart. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to tell you from my heart what I'm really thinking. And then when you're speaking, I'm going to. You've ever talked to someone who's not listening? Because what are they doing? They're thinking about what they're going to say next instead of listening. Where did I just put them? Below me or behind me? Do you see how to practice this? When you're dating, you need to practice side by side so that when you're married, you practice side by side. I love that symbolism of side by side. Okay, any other side by side comments? Let's do number two. Why else my rib? You see this in two ways. Let me point out both ways. Number one, it's under my wing like a hen gathereth her chicks. And the same thing. Tell me what my rib cage does. What is the purpose of my ribs? to protect my vital organs. The moment I married Jennifer, I became what? The protector of her heart. My most important assignment is to be the rib cage that guards her heart. When I married, my wife placed her heart in my hands. And I am the guardian of that very tender heart. 
Now, no one loves her like I do. And what's the other side to that? No one can hurt her as much as I can. I know how to hurt her. If I ever take advantage of what I know to hurt her, I have broken the very covenant I made with her. And I should lose the right to be her husband. I am to protect her heart in everything that we do. So something else interesting that I was thinking about along with the rib is that it's not exactly the most like out there part of your body, right? It's like my hand can like be a part like this. But in order to like access somebody's rib, you gotta be like right next to them, right? So it's like, I don't know, just kind of Beautiful. Talking about like, you know, sleeping with your wife and being one flesh. You gotta like be like right next to each other or your wrist and touch versus like everything else is like I love that. I love that. Let's let me do this. Elder Holland, and then those those a little tender hearted because Sister Holland was just laid to rest. I love this. He 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 gave this. I know I think it would have been Valentine's Day, but Sunday was the 15th, so just bear with him. He's doing this on Valentine's Day of 2000. So we've got to add 23. Elder Holland said, Love is a fragile thing, and some elements in life can try and break it. Much damage can be done if we are not in tender hands, caring hands. To give ourselves totally to another person as we do in marriage is the most trusting step we take in any human relationship. It is a real act of faith, faith all of us must be willing to exercise. If we do it right, we end up sharing everything all of our hopes, all of our fears, all of our dreams, all of our weaknesses, and all of our joys with another person. No serious courtship or engagement or marriage is worth the name if we do not fully invest all that we have in it. And in so doing, trust ourselves totally to the one that we love. How much of my heart can my ribcage see? I don't hold anything back. My wife knows me better than anyone else. You cannot succeed in love if you keep one foot out on the bank for safety's sake. The very nature of the endeavor requires that you hold on to each other as tightly as you can and jump into the pool together. In that spirit, I want to impress upon you the vulnerability and delicacy of your partner's future as it is placed in your hands for safekeeping. Male and female, it works both ways. Now, this is where we have to do a little addition. Sister Holland and I have been married for nearly 37 years. So now we add 23, which makes it 60. Now, it sounds like they were married around 21, probably right after his mission. So we've been married for nearly 37 years, just half dozen or so years short of twice as long as we lived without each other. So if it's now 60 and they were married in their 20s, how long have they lived with each other? Double what they lived without each other. I may not know everything about her, but I know 60 years worth, and she knows that much of me. I know her likes and her dislikes, and she knows mine. 
I know her tastes and her interests, hopes and dreams, and she knows mine. As our love has grown and our relationship has matured, we have been increasingly free with, one, with each other about all of that. The result is now that I know much more clearly now how to help her. And if I let myself, I know exactly what will hurt her. As in the honesty of our love, love that can't truly be Christ-like without such total devotion, surely God will hold me accountable for any pain I cause her by intentionally exploiting or hurting her when she has been so trusting of me. Having long since thrown away any self-protection in order that we could be, as the scriptures say, one flesh. To impair or impede her in any way for my gain or vanity or emotional mastery over her should disqualify me on the spot to be her husband. Indeed, it should consign my miserable soul to that internal incarceration in that large and spacious building, Lehi says, is the prison for those who live by vain imaginations and the pride of the world. In all that Christ was, he was not ever envious or inflated, never consumed with his own needs. He did not once, not ever, seek his own advantage as the expense of someone else. He delighted in the happiness of others and the happiness he could bring them. Do you see the symbolism of the rib? What if my wife feels fear when I come home? Then what am I not? I am not protecting her heart. What if my children are scared of their father? Then what am I not? Now, in that sense, can I share with you one of my favorite thoughts? This is from an English author named W.C. Brand. It's brilliant. The place to take the true measure of a man is not the darkest place or the amen corner, nor the cornfield, but by his own fireside. There he lays aside his mask, and you may learn whether he is an imp or an angel, cur or king, hero or humbug. I care not what the world says of him, whether it crowns him, as, crowns him boss or pelts him with bad eggs. If his... Oh, I care not a copper what his reputation or religion may be. If his babies dread his homecoming and his better half has to swallow her heart every time she has to ask him for a $5 bill, he is a fraud of the first water. Though he prays night and morning until he is black in the face. But if his children rush to the front door to meet him and love's sunshine illuminates the face of his wife every time she hears his footfall, you can take it for granted that he is pure, for his home is a heaven. I can forgive much in that fellow mortal who would rather make men swear than women weep, who would rather have the hate of the whole world than the contempt of his wife who would rather call anger to the eyes of a king than fear to the face of a child. Do you see the ribcage? 
Do you see the symbolism? Simply by drawing attention, simply by taking Eve from the rib, he is teaching all these symbols. I am the protector of her heart. Now, can you see that when you're dating? Can you watch whether or not the person you're dating is protecting your feelings and your tender heart or abusing it? Don't marry anyone who doesn't understand how to be a rib cage. <laughs> Don't marry them. If you do, if they act that way, find a rib somewhere and hand it to them and say, learn how to be my rib. <laughs> I'm not going to marry someone who doesn't know how to be my rib. Now, do you see what I'm saying, right? Side by side, protector of the heart and the lungs. Protector of breathing and feeling. Now, one more. What do you know about my rib? Nearest to my heart. It is nearest to my heart. What should be closer to my heart than my spouse? Nothing. Let me show you a fascinating little scripture connection. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, Master, what is the first and great commandment in the law? They were trying to trap him. The lawyers were trying to trap him by picking out a favorite commandment. So they asked him, Master, look at verse 36. What, which is the great and later, Mark says, first commandment? So between Matthew and Mark, which is the great and first commandment in the law? What was the answer? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. That's obvious, right? God, lo love God first. But what level of love am I supposed to have for God? All thy heart. So love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Now the second commandment, this is the first and great commandment. The second commandment was to love other human beings. At what level though? At what level of love do I love everyone else? Not the level I had for God. I love God with all my heart, but I love human beings as myself. Now that's a pretty high level. If I thought of you as often as I thought of myself, I'd be a pretty good neighbor. If I was as worried about your hunger and your well-being as I am about my hunger and my well-being, I'd be the best neighbor in the world. That's a pretty high level of love, right? But it's not this level of love. God, all my heart, everyone else as myself. Now, doctrine and covenants, the Lord takes one of these and bumps it up to this level. One other human being and bumps it up to the all thy heart. Turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 42. And while you get there, look at the section heading. What does Joseph Smith call section 42? What does he call it? Did you know we had a law of the church? Joseph Smith came down with two stone tablets. It's called section 42. It's got some fun ones in it. Can I show you some fun ones? How about this one? How about verse 40? Here's kind of a fun one. 
Tell me that thou shalt not in our day. Thou shalt not be proud in thy height. We have a law. Let me show you verse 22. And tell me the significance. Do you see the significance of what he just did? The first and the great commandment was to love God with all your heart and everyone else as yourself, except for one human being. Not my daughters, not my sons, not my hobbies. The one human being that I love with all my heart is my spouse. Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart. Do you see what he did with that phrase? There's no other human being I love like that. The only two people I'm commanded to love with all my heart are God and spouse. See the rib? Closest to my heart than anything else. So my bishop was talking one day in church and talking about when he was courting his wife and how he knew that his wife would prioritize, like, I guess his girlfriend at the time, would prioritize her testimony over him, right? And how... She, he knew that he needed to be a person who was worthy of her love because he knew that if he ever fell short of her standards for a gospel-centered husband, then she was going to prioritize God over him. So I think this loving your spouse with all of your heart, like on the same level of God, only comes if they are also loving God on the same level. Beautiful character. Right? Because it has to be three-way because otherwise you have to prioritize God over your spouse. Yeah. If it's not both. Yeah. But as long as we're striving to keep our covenants, you see the command? That's beautiful. That's profound to me. There's only two people I'm commanded to love. This is how President Kimball said it. Anyone want to read? Someone read. Abby? At my side, protector of hearts, nearest to my heart. Do you see the symbolism of that? Now let me do one more that's very, very sacred. And I am going to quote the scriptures because some of you are going to question what I'm doing. I am going to quote the scriptures. If you have an eye to see, I'll let you see. But I'm going to quote the scriptures. And then I'm going to ask you to make a connection. 
I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 22. That's the scripture I'm going to quote. Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 22. Okay, here's the setting. Uh, the king, when Isaiah is the prophet, is Hezekiah. The king has a servant who has not been very good. He's been cheating the king and stealing the king's money. His name is Shebna. And Shebna is being fired. Hezekiah doesn't know it. So the Lord tells, Hezekiah, the Lord tells Isaiah, you go fire Shebna. Shebna is no longer the king's steward, the one who is in charge, the, the secretary of state, state, so to speak. And I'm going to send you a new one. I'm going to send you a man by the name of, let's read it. Isaiah chapter 22. First, let's get the firing of Shebni, Shebna. Get thee into the house of the treasurer, even Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewn thee out a sepulcher here? And in other words, you're fired. So he fires Shebna, and he says, I'm going to send you someone worthy. I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Now, Hezekiah, you can trust Eliakim. You can trust him with your money. You can trust him with the key. Now, Eliakim is going to decide who gets in to see the king. Now, do you begin to see the symbolism here? Eliakim is the king's servant that decides who gets to see the king. Eliakim is a symbol of Jesus. Jesus has the key of David. Jesus gets to decide who gets to see the king. He can get you in to see the king. Now, speaking of that, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle and will commit thy government into his hand. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulders. Revelation says Jesus has the key of David. The key of David means he can unlock the door and let you to, in to see the king. Do you see the power of Jesus? Now, you can trust Eliakim like you can trust Jesus because I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Now, that's a reference to the crucifixion of the Savior. Elder Holland, let me quote Elder Holland. Shoot, I thought I had this ready, but I just realized I didn't. Give me one second. Elder Holland, in one of his recent books, said this. When the Roman soldiers drew, drove their four and a half four and one half inch crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh. They did so first into the open palm. If you wanted to hurt me, if the Romans wanted to hurt me, where would they crucify me? This is where it would hurt, right? Doesn't hurt in my wrist nearly as much as in my palm because of the nerve endings. If you want to hurt me, you crucify me in my hands. The problem with that is, what if I were to hang through nails in my hands? It would rip right out. 
When they drove their four and one half inch crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh, they did so first in the open palm. But because the weight of the body might tear that flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist. Now, could I hang on a nail through my wrist? Yes, that would hold me. down into the nexus of and sinews that would not tear no matter what the weight was thus the nail in the wrist was the nail in the sure place so that's a symbol jesus the nails in his wrist are a symbol that he is not going to fail you you can hang on him everything you can hang your hopes on him you can hang your faith on him Jesus is a nail in a sure place. Now, in the temple, we covenant with Christ to also be a nail in a sure place. I hold on to Jesus, and he holds on to me. And the covenant is, Jesus says, I will be a nail in a sure place for you. Will you be a nail? in a sure place for me. And that's a beautiful covenant. Can Jesus rely on me as much as I can rely on him because he is not going to fall? Can he hang his trust on me? Can Jesus be a can I be a nail in a sure place for Christ? Like Christ is a nail in a sure place for me. Now, those of you who have been to sacred places, there is only one other person I hold like that. Only one. Jesus and one other person. My spouse. Therefore, what is the covenant you make when you're sealed in the temple? What do I promise to be for my wife? I promise to be for that woman a nail in a sure place. I promise not to fail her. She can lay her heart on my nail because it won't fail. Do you see the symbolism? That sacred moment is everything that covenant is. My wife needs to feel safe in my care. I need to be a nail in a sure place for her. Because I know Jesus will be. May I plead with you as you're looking for an eternal companion look for someone who keeps you at their side who protects your vulnerable heart who keeps who shows you that they can keep you closest to their heart and is a nail in a sure place that's how you know if you found your eternal companion 
You promise to be a nail in a sure place for them and make sure they promise to be a nail in a sure place for you. That's walking side by side. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for joining us for the Eternal Family Podcast class. This has been class number nine. This week, as you ponder what you've learned in this class, would you ask yourself, how will you or how are you keeping your spouse at your side, nearest to your heart? And how are you being the protective cage that protects their heart? Would you ask yourself if there's any changes in your behavior that this symbolism is inviting? I would invite you to let go of lesser things. Let, let go of telestial and terrestrial behaviors and get into the celestial world and keep spouts at your side, nearest your heart. And you take that responsibility to protect their heart very seriously.